So the question is, do I try to get you in your seats quick so Daniel has more time to pray or, or to uh, preach to us? <laughs> well, we, uh, we made the announcement last week of uh, a new baby, but uh, we didn't have a rose. So today we have a rose here for Lydia Rose Silk. Um, congratulations, Daniel, on uh, that new life. Uh, we're excited. I saw something on Facebook about his quiver growing. I, I think uh, maybe you're about two-thirds of the way to a good start of that. <laughs> so, all right. Praise the Lord for uh, the life he's created and blesses us with children. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you that we can come before you, lift up to you our, our thanksgiving and our requests, uh, you are the one that we take refuge in. We thank you for that, that you are um, with us in our trouble as we uh, go through life, that you walk with us and uh, shelter us with your wings. We pray, Father, that you might open our eyes uh, to see uh, that good that you bring out of all of our circumstances, whether good or the calamities that befall us, that we might have eyes to see that uh, you're working a greater and uh, more perfect good in our lives than what we would initially want. Father, as we uh, think of our needs and the things that we're going through, we think of Alfredo Boulder. Just ask, Father, that you would uh, cause this next round of uh, treatments of medication to, uh, to be that which restores her sight. Father, we... Uh, just our hearts go out for that and uh, just to her, and we pray that you would restore her sight. Pray, Father, for uh, others in our congregation dealing with uh, sickness, and cancer, for our young ones that have been dealing with virus this week. Just pray your healing upon them. Pray for wisdom for doctors. Uh, just pray for uh, those that are traveling. Uh, it's gasaways as they uh, make their way this way. We pray that you would give them safety on the road. Uh, be preparing them for the ministry here. We pray for Mark uh, Brumbaugh as he travels this week. Give him safety. For uh, Grace and Amy Voth, Father, we received news that uh, it's a hard work where they're at in India for uh, this week. And uh, let's pray that you would give them strength, sustain them. Uh, give them many opportunities for the gospel, and uh, pray that they might uh, might make good um, the uh, desire to uh, expand your kingdom, to bring others into uh, the knowledge of Christ. Father, we thank you for uh, your blessings, for the blessing of a, a new baby this last week, uh, for uh, bringing uh, John Hale back home uh, from deployment. We thank you for that. Thank you for, uh, for your word that's about to be preached. Father, speak to us. Cause us to, uh, to, to see you um, in a new light. May we be growing in our knowledge and understanding of you. And I uh, pray that you would give Daniel clarity as he brings your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.
Check, check. Hey, signal. Sweet. All right. Thanks, Terrell and Kip. Um, well, hey, before we get started, just a couple of housekeeping things. First of all, you guys, you, you've noticed that the, uh, the nursery is, is closed. We had a, a pretty bad round of hand, foot, and mouth going through the place, so I want to give kudos and thanks to uh, the Sandwicks for coming in here and getting that place sterilized, and that's why it's, let me move this out of the way a little bit more here, <laughs> sorry. That's why that place is, is closed. Um, so, no big deal. We're glad that you're here, though. We want to just be thankful that you're here with all your families, everybody here, like one big family in this space. It kind of makes me feel at home if there's kids squawking and screaming. Uh, I'm totally cool with that. That's kind of like how my house is pretty much all the time. This thing is just not fitting good. Okay, there we go. Is that good, Kip? Is that going to work? All right, sweet. Um, all right, so good morning. It is really good to be here with you guys today. And honestly, I'm just glad that I made it here. Uh, it's been an action-packed week for us at the Silk Home. Like we said, a week ago today, this morning, well, a week ago this morning, we were at St. Mary's ushering in our new baby, uh, Lydia Rose. And then we got home. We had family at the house, lots of visitors. And then our other two daughters, Abigail and Lily, both got the hand, foot, and mouth disease. So they've been pretty miserable all week. And that, on top of trying to finish up a basement renovation, I needed to get that thing done and tie up a whole bunch of other loose ends before I start my new Southwest Airlines job here in a couple weeks, has kind of got me just sort of wore down. And, uh, you know, about Friday I was like, man, God, I could, I could use a break. Just, just a, a little rest would be, would be nice. And I'm sure you guys have all been at that place before in your life. And if you haven't been there, well, you'll be there at some point. Um, where you want to just go to your refuge, just go to your happy place, go to your fortress of solitude, whatever it may be, and, and just be at rest. You know, for me, that refuge puts me on top of a mountain peak somewhere in Colorado or Montana or Wyoming. Uh, just me, God, and the mountain goats and the mule deer. That's kind of where my refuge is. That's where I can feel at peace. I can feel very small, but also very close to the Lord. Um, I don't know where your refuge might be, but kind of imagine in your mind's eye what that, what that place might look at. And our, our text today deals specifically with that desire that we have at times in our life to be in refuge, to just be in a fortress of strength where we can be protected, and what our response to that desire should look like, what a healthy response to that uh, is like. Now, regarding our text for today... Commentator Roger Ellsworth states that this psalm has long been a favorite of the people of God. It is not hard to see why this psalm is so loved. It is one of the most comforting in all the Bible. It offers comfort for the fearful and troubled. Only those who have ev never been fearful or troubled can afford to neglect it. And I would suffice it to say that probably none of us have been in that place where we've never been fearful or troubled. Therefore, we cannot afford to neglect this psalm, so we're going to take a look at it a little bit deeper today. Let's turn to Psalm 91. We'll read the text. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, the author writes, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. 
You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time you've given us to come here to gather in your name, to open your word, Lord, to read from it and to be encouraged by it. Pray that you would speak through this passage to us today, that you would open our hearts and minds to hear and to understand what it is that you want to tell us today from this scripture, Lord. I pray that you would get me out of the way and that you would be able to just speak through this word and that uh, we would all know more about you, we would become closer to you, and we would be better servants of yours because of this. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I think I've got the hand, foot, and mouth, too. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> so before we dig into this passage uh, deeper, I need to provide a little bit of context. Many theologians agree on David as the author of this passage based on its Davidic feel and on several similarities between this particular psalm and others that are specifically attributed to Israel's beloved king. As for the date of writing, if we hold to a Davidic authorship, which I do, it's very possible that this passage was composed during the time of God's judgment on Israel following David's census that was issued to the people, and that's recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 24. If you recall that story, the text states that David numbered all of Israel and Judah, and this census that he issued brought God's harsh judgment on the land. 2 Samuel 24 reads like this, So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. Now think about that number. The population of Enid currently sits right around 50,000. Our friends up in Ponca City have about 20,000 people living there. So imagine if both of these northern Oklahoma prominent cities were completely annihilated. That's about 70,000 people gone. And the text says 70,000 men, so likely it was more than that if you count women and children as well. Now, tying Psalm 91 to this event in the life of David makes sense based on multiple references in the passage to pestilence and plague in conjunction with the idea of tens of thousands of people dying at one's right hand. While it cannot be proved with certainty that Psalm 91 arose out of the story of, in David's life and the Israelites, it does seem to fit well given these textual, textual cues that, that uh, we've talked about. But really, whether or not we ascribe to we ascribe this passage to that event in the life of David, it does not diminish the eternal truths and the applications that we can find in its hope in this passage. 
So we can fairly easily divide this, uh, this, section, this, this section of Scripture into three distinct sections. And they're not in your outline because, like I said, my week's been a little hectic and I didn't get the outline to Jody in time to print in your bulletin. But I'll give it to you now. If you have a pen, you can write it down. The first section, three different sections. The first section is the promise of God's protection. That's uh, verses 1 through 8, the promise of God's protection. Second section is the practicality of God's protection in verses 9 through 13, the practicality of God's protection. And then lastly, the, the last section, section 3, is the permanence of God's protection in verses 14 and 16, the permanence of God's protection. So let's take a look at this first section, the promise of God's protection. In the first two verses, we see a proclamation of trust and confidence in God for the believer. This introduction really sets the stage for the rest of the psalm and places it squarely within the genre of confidence or trust psalms. We know that there's many different genres of psalm. There's lament, there's imprecatory psalms, there's messianic psalms, there's lots of different psalms, but this psalm falls under the the heading of trust or confidence psalm. Now, the divine name used in verse 2 that translates to Almighty is actually Shaddai or El Shaddai. And that means, in Hebrew, that means the mighty king or sovereign judge of the world who grants life and blesses and also who kills and judges. So Almighty, El Shaddai, judge, grants life, kills, blesses. Almighty God. Immediately in verse 2, we see introduced this concept of God as our refuge or fortress. And this is a theme that's repeated three different times in this psalm. And because of the centrality of this word refuge or this theme of refuge and fortress, the centrality of this metaphor, it's important to note that this is actually the root metaphor for the Lord's protective care. But not only in Psalm 91, but if you look throughout the rest of the Psalter, it is the root metaphor for God's protective care, refuge, fortress. God's protective care. Those things are all descriptive terms used throughout the Psalter. Now, these descriptions about fortresses and refuge can bring to mind lots of different images. For me, I think of uh, impenetrable fortresses, castles, defensive positions, and the like. In my mind's eye, I see places like Helm's Deep or many of the fortresses of Gondor from J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, epic trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. Some of you may have read those books or seen those movies. Or I also think of uh, the Gulf Coast in Florida, where in Alabama, where you see these old Spanish forts that have layer upon layer of walls that are fortified with meters-thick stone structures. And you may have other, other images that come to mind when you think of a refuge or a fortress. But really, these, none of these images do true justice to the type of refuge or fortress that can be found in God alone. This type of refuge that he provides is utterly complete and totally impenetrable. Nothing can get in that God does not allow in. That's the type of fortress or refuge we have in him. Now, in verse 3 through 8, the latter half of this first section of the passage is loaded with imagery that may seem a little bit odd to us here in 21st century North America. But it would have been quite poignant and meaningful to its original audience. So let's try to kind of remove ourselves from our current context. A couple thousand miles to the east... And several thousand years ago, let's think about what it would be like living in that world, that culture, that time and place as we try to let this imagery from this psalm soak in. 
Verse 3 introduces the idea of someone setting a snare for a bird. And this is a metaphor for basically unexpected or unwanted trouble. A bird flying along, finds a nice something to eat, goes down there, well, it's a snare, and he gets caught. And he gets entrapped in that. That's the metaphor, uh, the, 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 the image that's being portrayed there. It also contains this first uh, mention of the deadly pestilence or plague that we've talked about already. So think about the utter devastation and hopelessness of people in the face of a plague of this type, and plagues in that day and age in general. There were no antibiotics to kill off infection, no sterile hospitals where mass treatment could be administered. You know, plagues would sweep through civilizations and just completely eliminate entire people groups in a short amount of time. Additionally, if we observe this passage in light of the Second Samuel reference to the plague that God sent, that's the worst kind of plague imaginable, one issued, administered by God. There's no hope from that other than in him. So the situation, potentially very dire. Moving on to verse 4, we have imagery of pinions or wings as a covering from the Lord. Pinions, wings, same, same word there. Now this passage is not saying that God is a bird. Please don't read that into it. Rather, the author is pointing us towards the image of a highly protective mother bird or hen who's guarding her chicks, her baby birds, from the elements with her wings. Some of you that have had birds and and chickens may have seen that before. But I think of another kind of image related to wings. How many of you guys have seen the movie How to Train Your Dragon? Anybody? How to Train Your Dragon? Yes. Great flick. If you haven't seen it, go home, get on Netflix, rent it. It's it's a really good movie. Um, It's one of our family's uh, favorites. There's a couple of them. But during one scene in How to Train Your Dragon... When faced with sure destruction at the hand, or really the fiery breath of the bad guy dragons, the pet dragon, the kind of the hero of the show, Toothless, makes a self-sacrificing move to save his master, the boy Hiccup, by wrapping his wings around the boy and taking the full brunt of the fiery punishment himself. Now, Toothless in this encounter is maimed and hurt, but he saves the boy Hiccup from certain death because of him wrapping his wings around him and protecting him. Now, this is the kind of imagery that I think this this verse is describing as God's protective care. Next, you see the concept of God's faithfulness as a shield and a buckler. And this brings to mind a strong, sturdy shield that buckles tightly around the soldier's arm or maybe even other parts of his body. That it's, It's fastened securely to his body to protect the soldier in battle. From arrows, spears, swords, maces, lances, axes, any other type of old medieval type weaponry that could be, uh, that could be used against a soldier in that time. So think about that as, as God's protective shield, something that's securely fastened. It's not going away. Verse 5 and 6 provide a broad and, and general kind of all-encompassing description of bad things that can happen to us. The terror of the night could refer to a number of things, from night raiders to the plague that we've talked about sweeping the land, or even to wild animals out looking for a midnight human snack. Now, quite literally, the arrow that flies by day could refer to just that, actual arrows, but also could refer, in a broader sense, to general attacks that we're faced with, whether it be attacks of of character, uh, whatever kind of attacks that are are brought against us by the evil one to, to bring us down. So verse 7 and 8 of this first section kind of culminate uh, with their description of tens of thousands of deaths at, at a person's right hand. We've already noted the 70,000 men as a result of the plague in 2 Samuel 24 that passed away. But notice in verse 8, at the end of verse 8, there's a key turning point to this passage. It says, 
you will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. So the implication here is that the wicked are being punished for their wrongdoing and that those who have placed their faith in the Lord will be protected from harm and will instead experience his salvation. But it's important at this juncture to provide a little balance to this text. We need to round this out a little bit. At first blush, this passage can be confusing to some as these promises to believers really seem out of touch with reality, that no harm will come to a person. However, God's promises of refuge for those who trust in him are specifically for their deliverance from his divine retribution against the wicked. I'm going to read that again. That's important. God's promises of refuge for those who trust in him are specifically for their deliverance from his divine retribution against the wicked. Deliverance from God's divine retribution. That's the worst type of retribution a person could could ever endure is from God. But the best protection a person could ever have is also from God. So the psalmist is not attempting to portray this carefree life that's void of calamity. Rather, he's portraying a confidence in God's promises to deliver believers from calamities in accordance with his perfect will. About this, John Calvin once said, and I quote, When we look back on our life from the perspective of eternity, we're going to see that the power of Satan was so great, that the weakness of our flesh was feeble, And that the hostility of the world was so strong that every day of our lives, if God had not intervened, we would never have made it through a day. Let's look at the next section now. Section 2, the practicality of God's protection, verses 9 through 13. So verse 9 transitions us towards really the why and how of God's protection. It states that because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, he he will protect you. Now, we got to note here that God, not man, accomplishes the initial calling to faith. It's not getting the, the cart before the horse here. God in, initiates that call to faith. Paul, in Romans 9, 15 through 16, makes this very clear. He quotes the book of Exodus, where God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then Paul says, so then it depends not on human will or exertions, but on God who has mercy. That puts the order correctly there. So this psalm is not implying that God, or that faith in God originates with us, with man. The rest of sacred scripture is quite clear on the fact that, that God is the one who does the initial calling, and he's the one who instills faith in man so that man can properly respond. However, that fact does not absolve us, man, from our requirement to continually and consistently rely upon him, lean upon him, and place our trust upon God Almighty. That's what this passage is getting at. Hold on to God, and he will hold on to you. Verse 11 goes on to state actually how God's protection plays out practically in the life of of the believer. The text says that he will command his angels concerning you to guard all of your ways. And this is a pretty interesting portion of the scripture. It's, in fact, one of the few places in all of the Bible where this whole idea of guardian angels can be supported by and where it's found. So practically speaking, this passage tells us that God's purposes are carried out via the workings of his angelic beings as they actively engage with the natural world that we live in. 
Exactly how this works, we're not really sure. It still remains a mystery to us, and it, I'm, I'm sure it will until we, uh, we reach glory and can understand things from a more spiritual perspective. But what we can know is that angels and demons do exist, because the Bible says they do, and they are actually at work daily in, in the world around us. Now, the New Testament book of Luke draws or contains near identical parallel verbiage to this passage in Psalm 91 about, about angelic activity. In Luke 10, 17 through 20 is where we find that passage. Now, here in Psalm 91, God's protective power is being promised. But then years later, at the time of Christ, during the time of Christ in the book of Luke, um, that almost same exact verbiage related to his protective power is promised by Christ as he sends out the 72 disciples. So there's, there's a really interesting parallel of language between this in Psalm 92 and in Luke 10 and 17, 17 through 20. But then also, if we look back to Genesis 3.15, remember where there's, there's the verbiage of uh, he, the, the serpent and the son of man, he will bruise his heel and he speaking of Christ, will crush his head. So there's parallel also back to Genesis 3.15. So just as Christ trampled the serpent Satan, so his imputed power and authority to all who place their trust in him, Christ, enable them, or us, through him to also conquer death and trample the serpent. His imputed power to us enable us, through him, to trample trample death in the grave. Noteworthy as well as the fact that Satan quotes this psalm. He quotes Psalm uh, 91, 11 through 12 when he tempts Christ. And that account is found, is recorded in Matthew 4. There we see Satan's actual misapplication of this psalm. Now the psalmist acknowledges God's fatherly care over those who trust in him and assures us that this protection is complete. But when quoting verses 11 and 12 to Jesus, Satan omits a portion. He omits the in all of your ways portion of of verse 11. This is a key omission by the devil as it essentially twists that passage towards a view of God as a puppet who operates according to man's will rather than his own sovereign perfect will. So Satan's proposal to Jesus, as recorded in, in Luke, that he throw himself from the temple in no way resembles the intention of the psalmist. Satan misapplied and distorted scripture to fit his own agenda. And this is also the last verse that Satan uses, attempts to use against Christ in his, in his trying to get him to, uh, to disobey the Father. So Christ promptly, soundly refutes the deceiver's twisted view of scripture with correct and truthful usage of the word. All right, let's move on to the last section, section three, the permanence of God's protection in the last few verses here. There's a really interesting change of person, if you notice that as we read through, the psalmist is talking as the psalmist, but then here in verse 13, it says, uh, because he holds fast to me in love. He switches person. Now the psalmist is speaking as if God is speaking. He's speaking from a different person's perspective or God's perspective. He concludes here with the Lord's assurance that he does indeed deliver his people. He hears and answers their prayers. He blesses them with his presence, satisfies them with long life, and finally shows them his salvation, God's salvation. 
Now, these promises were issued under the Old Covenant. They're no less applicable to us today as New Covenant believers who are now in Christ. We today have the privilege of being able to look backwards and see how Jesus truly was the fulfillment of so many Old Testament promises. We can put our trust and confidence in him and claim these promises as our own. Now, Romans 8, 38 through 39 echoes the ideas put forward in this psalm uh, in the closing section here where Paul writes, Romans 8, 38 through 39, speaks to the permanence of God's protection. Paul says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, it is because of Christ that we can know God's name. It is because of Christ that God hears us when we call out to him and that he does answer. It's because of Christ that God will rescue us. It is because of Christ that, he will re- that we will receive honor ultimately with him in glory. And it is because of Christ and Christ alone that God shows us his salvation by graciously extending that salvation and eternal life to any and all who would put their faith in him. If you've not yet placed your trust in Christ by submitting to his authority and and just submitting your heart to him, following him, I'd encourage you to do so today. Don't wait. Uh, If you don't know how to go about that or what to do, what to say, where to start, but you want to, come find me, come find Chris or any of the other elders here at EMB, and we'd love to walk you through that. Or if you have someone in your life who you know is following hard after Christ, go to that person. They would also love to be able to, to help you along that journey. Now, in conclusion, we've got to realize that this psalm is not to be interpreted in isolation as a blanket against harm. All right? We live in a fallen world in which we are directly and indirectly impacted by the sin of humanity. The God-man Christ Jesus himself came here and experienced harm. And it would be foolish of us to think that we, fallen humans, are to be completely free from harm in this world. Jesus himself tells us that in this life we will have troubles. In John 16, he says, I have said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And Matthew 5, 11 says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Psalm 91 is a message of encouragement and confidence that God will do what he said he will do. He is our refuge. We can run to him and he will protect us. And when difficult things do come our way, we can rest assured that he has a purpose for it in our lives and in the lives of our fellow believers, and it's for his glory ultimately. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this opportunity that you've given us to come here, to open your word, to read from the psalm, and Lord, just to expand our knowledge of who you are, of how you operate, of how you love us, of how you are longing for us to turn to you as our refuge, God. I pray that you would make these words just penetrate into our hearts and minds deeply this week as we go about our days and as we as we face different trials and tribulations god i pray that you would just draw us to yourself that our first response wouldn't be to turn to some other thing as our refuge but it would be to turn immediately to you that we would cast our cares upon you because we know that you care for us and that you 
that you will bear those burdens for us and with us, God. Father, we love you. We thank you for for all your blessings, Lord. We thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ, who made all of this possible, Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.